I swear to submit to the following set of rules drawn up and confirmed by Dogma95. Shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop can be found. The sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. The camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. The film must be in colour. Special lighting is not acceptable. Optical work and filters are forbidden. The film must not contain superficial action. Temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. Genre movies are not acceptable. The film format must be Academy 35mm. The director must not be credited. Furthermore, I swear as a director to refrain from personal taste. I am no longer an artist. I swear to refrain from creating a work, as if regarding the instant as more important than the whole. My supreme goal is to force the truth out of my characters and settings. I swear to do so by all means available and at the cost of any good taste and any aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. That is dogma. And that is what we're going to be talking about for the next God knows how many episodes, Ben. (laughs) million this is going to be. Now, officially, there are 30 or so films. Mm -hmm. We're going to try and watch as many as we can. Bear in mind that some of them have actually completely disappeared, mm-hmm. which I do quite like, actually, because that, is, like Dogma, it's not a thing that was ever really meant to stick around permanently. No. Um, the fact it kind of stuck around when all the Danish, all four Danish sites, original signatures, uh, Christian Levering, uh, Lars von Trier, Thomas Venterberg, etc. Um, when they decided to walk away from Dogma, Dogma really should have ended at that point, but it carried on for another 10 or so films. International mm. people got involved and all the rest of it. So, interesting. But um, we're now going to sit through and talk about a whole bunch of Dogma films, as many as we can over many episodes. Yeah. All fun at the fair, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's, obviously, and, and we'll, we'll also take our part in the in the chastity by not yeah. mentioning each each film's director. Ooh, I mean, hey, fun. Okay. How utterly pretentious, because of course you can Google them and find out who directed Dogma Number One at ETC, and we may give clues about who to, who did them by mentioning other films that they did. Could that happen. May relate to the films that they've done here, if they can be relatable, of course. But uh, yeah, that's what we'll do as we're just talking okay. about the films. Fun so, uh, yeah. Shall we jump feet first into this glorious Dogma, Ben? Oh, oh God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love it. I, I, I admit, I love it, and I think yeah. I treat us by uh, having sat through a lot of uh, stuff in I'm, recent director reviews. I thought we deserved a treat. I'm so sorry about the Zelowski period. Let's let's all move on. You are welcome, <laughs> <laughs> and and forgiven because uh, that is life. It's always better to forgive and forget hey, and watch Dogma. We all loved possession, right? <laughs> we did, just like, just like. Uh, I think I think it's safe to say. I can confidently say that quite a few of you have seen Dogma Number One. Mm. Uh, at least I'd hope so, because it, Ben, remains one of the greatest Danish films of all time, and for me, probably the greatest of all time. Dogma Ooh, Number One, Festen. It's about, otherwise known as a celebration. It's about a family who have a party to celebrate their father's 60th birthday, but a secret will be outed for the very first time, which will destroy everything. Now, during our chat going forward, Ben, during the many episodes we'll be doing these, uh, I guess the main theme will be kind of as we revisit all of these or as many as we can. Um, how do the rules of dogma actually help the film? 
Oh, and yeah. how do they and how, and, how, and and when do they, if they do, hold the film back? So how do yep. the rules affect the film positively and negatively? Yeah, yep. okay. For me, Dogma One is absolutely perfect. To be honest, yeah. it's enhanced because of the intimate handheld camera. It's mm. enhanced by the limitations placed upon it. The use of natural light, for example, um, there are lots and lots of light scenes. Yep. Um, and they're always during critical moments, so they give you enough but not quite enough to make you feel comfortable in terms, in terms of being able to see people's faces and capturing atmosphere. Uh, and those are throughout the film. Mm. Um, and that's just one thing that I could mention. You can mention a whole bunch of other things. I mean, the technical creativity of the film with the placed limitations on it. I mean, the camera isn't static, so therefore the crew had to get really, really creative. And boy, in this dogma, they did. Mm. I mean, th- th- there are some crazy shots of like zany swooping landing on people's heads um yeah. and yeah. tracking shots which almost have like a cc cctv quality to them yeah um none better than the character michael who's running between rooms putting his trousers on like the way the track it, it, it's hilarious like the way they do that is just magnificent um as i say almost like following a crime on cctv or something yeah. um it's a serious film that broke the mould with its subject at the time as well. Uh, it had lots of humour as well to balance it out. There are lots of moments in this film that are great. You've got Toastmaster being quite funny. You just you, Even the racism's quite funny in this film, which is maybe yep. a dodgy thing to say, but that that is quite humorous as well. Um, it all makes sense. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's just, for me, as I say, a perfected film from, yeah. from, a, from a director that we won't mention that would go on to have varying success making truly great Danish films such as The Hunt, which I think would be would be one of the greatest of all time. Making less great English language films um, as well. Uh, the, and he, and he, he seems to swap between the two. Some of them I find kind of interesting. Like, it's all about love. It's a, a That's complete... That's what I get. I, I will defend that film. And yeah. I, I'm in the, I, me and you may be in the minority for that, but that's his best English language one by far. I, but a I lot of the others... Yeah, it's uh, just but that weird car crash of a movie. Um, it's just kind of delightfully fascinating. Yeah, it does. And it, uh, yeah, it's a car crash that that's actually good to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and let's also say that this Dogma film, Dogma Number One, it won at Cannes. I think it won the jury prize. Yes, especially uh, it became a massive success, yeah. and all the things you'd have heard about it are actually true. Limited budget, the rules of the rules of Dogma were applied. Yeah. There were occasional bits of cheating. Um, oh, where, where did they cheat with this? So one? they, they, they. Um, no artificial light must be used. That also yeah. applies to making things dark when they're not dark. They did some, ah, they, did they some darkened dark the windows. They That's did. Right. They put black yes. drapes over occasional scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and in terms of um, music as well, they kind of all music should be natural. Yeah. Um, and and it shouldn't be used unless it occurs where the scene is shot. Um, yeah. Is one of the rules. Yeah. Uh, well, and basically, there's a piano scene late in this in this movie, um, yeah. and it kind of happened at different points in the movie. And in editing, they kind of put it together all in it's one one piece of music. Yes, it is. You're yes. right. And they're all dancing right. around. So, yes. so there are. I mean, to call it cheating would be unfair. Slight bending of the rules. I mean, the, the big bending of the rule that happens in every single dogma movie is the 35 millimeter. Yes. There, there are no Dogma films which were shot with 35mm. They were all shot on different formats and then transferred to 35mm, right, exactly. which feels like a cheat. But yes. 
it's you know what the hell it's going to be very difficult to make a dogma film on 35 mil very expensive. indeed i mean what we associate is the handheld element anyway so yeah. they all stick to that so that is no issue at all um i mean we could again we could have a whole episode on this one film ben um plenty of greater people than ours have written <coughs> essays and you know just massively critiqued it it's an incredibly yeah. important film it's a successful film it changed a lot of people's lives um it, 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 I mean, it's just a pleasure to watch it again, Ben. It really is. And your take on Dogma, please. Okay, so no, so for me, it's a little bit sad that Dogma comes out of the gate with the best Dogma film. Yes. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's a little disappointing. That I mean, there are elements is, in all the others we'll get to, but uh, yes, yeah, that, that is a simple fact. Yeah, it's kind of like we're, we're doing Zolowski again. We've, 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 we've hit the high point immediately because um, Festin is an astonishing film. And for me, I was sitting there watching it. I don't think I've seen it since it came out. So this is 22 years later. It's been a good 10 um, years for me as well, probably. So. It's, I, I was fascinated to see how it stands up. One oh, of the reasons that Festin works so well for me is what those rules of chastity kind of highlight is that Festin is constantly what what now what now what now it's it's it dwells in this moment of what's going to happen now and anything can happen now and they set that up in the very very first scene you've got your your main character christian walking down the road his brother drives past and then his brother stops reverses goes back to pick him up and then kicks out his wife and kids (laughs) makes them walk and then gets his brother to drive in the car and then from that moment on you're in a you're in a film where anything can happen at any point for any reason and that kind of like now 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 kind of thing i don't remember seeing it quite so highlighted in any other dogma film but there's this constant what now which is it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And for someone like me, who is increasingly upset with how artificial and cartoon-like and composited films are getting, um, dogma is just so essential. It's, it's, it's so important to be excited by the world that we live in and filmmaking as a performative art and an art about making the most of what you have available to you, not about getting everything you could possibly want and then having everything exactly right to the nth degree working with the world working with people working with crappy technology um is what makes dogma so wonderful and festin is just a freaking delight of a movie um i got um mrs ben to watch this with me she had never seen festin before i don't think she's seen a dogma movie before actually. right so uh, immediately she, i'm all ears then because she, I, I would i would love to have those feelings of discovering this for the first time right? so she absolutely loved it she just said it was really really fun which it is it's a very fun movie it's it a fun film yeah yeah who like um it should be kind of upsetting and harsh and horrible but it's not it's really fun um there are no kind of like your your questions of good or bad right and wrong what happened and what didn't happen are thrown into question the whole way through the movie um you know michael is the evil guy not by the end of the movie he's not christian is the hero or is he did this really happen is he just deluded and nuts you don't know what anyone's motivations are everything is confusing you're you're spiraling around in the now all the time where it's the way movies normally play themselves out it's in this really cold calculated benefit of hindsight 
this goes here and then this happens but you don't get any of that in festin you're, you're dizzy the whole way through yeah. everything is bonkers everything is shouting and noisy and it's it's such a freaking delight of a movie it's just so much fun to i can, I can honestly see myself never getting bored of watching this um, no, but no. I, th- I actually will treat it like a, a once every handful yes. of years thing Yes. I mean, like, just to play devil's advocate, I, I, for me, it's not my, the greatest Danish film ever made. I, but then that's to put... That's of course. Put, it's, always, that, it's always personal, of course. Yeah, but, but I don't know if the Dogma movies are great movies. The idea is beautiful and the experience is fantastic. The finished object, I think a lot of people would argue, is not necessarily a movie. I'm doing air bunny quotes around my head. Uh, a movie per se it's it's something else but yes. this something else is something that's so essential to cinema we have to understand why we like films and movie making in the first place and dogma just reminds us of everything that's essential to the film and by cutting away all this caca getting rid of all the genre getting rid of all the kind of the random here's a gun uh, in act two it's got to go off in act four getting rid of all that gubbins about movies and taking them back to something very very primal reminds us about why filmmaking is the wonderful thing that it is i, this, I don't this, have much, this would not work this would not work as a novel no no well no it would of course it would you've got a you've got a story of a secret and a family breaking down and a party that, that is the classic novel thing it but is it, it sure it, as hell miss out on a lot of things if you only read the book of this and not watched the film Yes. I mean, if, if it were to be a book, I would say this is like James Joyce's Ulysses, in a yep. way, a book that's obsessed with the now all the time and not like what happened before, what comes after. Um, yeah, I guess I, I don't have enough good things to say about this film. I really enjoyed uh, spending time in its company again. It's like seeing a really old friend and they're very trim and they've looked after themselves very well. And they and haven't, they haven't changed. They haven't and, changed. Uh, they remain as as interesting as they were when you last saw them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, can, yeah, can I just bring can I just bring up a scene? Um, well, oh, I mean, yeah, what, yeah. what what scenes can we bring up really? I mean, any number. I mean, um, the, like like, like, like Zalavski's possession, oh, we can God. bring up any number of scenes. For God. me, and, and, and this is why it remains the greatest Danish film of all time for me, because actually my favourite scene in this has got nothing to do with dogma at all, um, and that is when one of the waitresses who's having an affair with one of the brothers. Um, she's in the bath and she goes underwater in the bath uh, and she's just kind of not breathing and stuff and then there is a lightning fast cut, I mean holy cow one of the fastest cuts I've ever seen in cinema to one of the brothers falling in the shower and completely smashing the shower up as a result and it's all all very loud and then I think the third part of that is when the sister finally finds the letter and she's reading a letter and she scares the receptionist into thinking that the letter has got something really serious in it. It does, yep. but she pretends it doesn't. So she, yep. she essentially fake scares. The re- all of this sounds a bit weird. It all makes sense when you watch the film. And these three things happen within a second of each other. It's bash, yep. bash, bash. That was an incredible piece of editing. It really I've, was. It's the, all, I, don't, all, I don't even know how they had the computers to do that back in those days. <laughs> that is literally zooming into the to the if they even did it on computers they fucking knows to be fair like but it, it, how they were able to cut that together and it's bash 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 three loud screams in your face that most horror films and this is not a horror film obviously most horror films are incapable 
of doing editing that dramatic as this. It was just, I mean, again, I could mention a hundred other things, but yeah. that scene in particular was like, wow. And that's nothing to do with Dogman. That's just the skill of the staff that were working on this film. Yeah. And also taking, so you're, you're watching things happening. You're just watching people doing things. Yeah. But all of a sudden with that scene, if, if, if you can watch that scene with the, the head that has never seen this movie before, one of the things that a first time viewer experiences there, which uh, I got a little insight from Mrs. Ben, is the fact that although we know this um, maid is having an affair with one of the brothers, at that point in the movie, we don't know who she is. Or we, no. we don't know her relationship to him. All we know is that his twin has died. And now he's spending time in his hotel room with a woman that no one else has spoken to. And so you start entertaining the possibility that he is there with the ghost of his twin and that she is now doing her death in the bath scene. So although that's not what's happening, that's that's your first time kind of experience where you're kind of grasping for what's going on. And your brain is making all these connections all the way through the film. You do this thinking, is that is that is that is that? And it, it keeps you so busy. That bit in particular keeps an audience member really busy with thinking what's going on the whole time, which you you don't get that so much no more. They go. No. Um, uh, nice. one, one of the biggest influences of this film is without question, chaos at the dinner table. Oh God. Yeah. Um, now it's, it's funny that obviously Zalowski actually did a fair amount of this before this film came out. <laughs> yes, you, you cannot watch a Scandinavian cinema film and not have, chaos at the dinner table now no. you very very particularly from Denmark you very rarely see it yeah. um, because it's just a thing that happens it's got so much association with right this is a family moment this is a moment when we actually forget about our problems and we eat a nice meal yeah. not in Danish films no. ever since no. this movie happened this would be interesting if we've got listeners as well from Scandinavian countries I'd like we to do. test this one because when whenever I've been having a meal at um, at a friend's house in a Scandinavian country, I'm always told that talking conversation over the table is not the done thing. Um, you just you sit there and you eat in silence, which is an, as an English person is anathema. I can't do it. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to break this because I need to talk. How was your day? Um, I can't sit here in silence. So, yeah, to see this kind of chaotic dinner scene play out in a in a country where I believe everyone just kind of sits and eats and doesn't really chat is a lot of fun as well. I mean, I mean ju just as fun as the conga scene thing. Oh, you see, the conga scene was, was the final scene that I could remember. I haven't seen this since 98. And I was like, I, OK, I know what happens in the film, but I can't really remember the last 20 minutes. The conga oh, no, scene, of course not. No. scene that I remembered. Um, and the scene that really blew me away because I'd completely forgotten about it was the dream. Um, yes. How, how do you make a convincing dream scene when you're shooting on a, a Sony DV camera uh, with no fancy filmmaking equipment? Or you do it like this. And the, the dream scene in this film is wonderful. Absolutely. Just fantastic. Um, all of a sudden, those crappy digital video aesthetics turn into something completely unreal um yeah i absolutely loved the dream scene totally didn't remember it at all i really really need to get married in denmark because no. I, I just love their happy birthday song that's better than ours <laughs> their conga <laughs> thing is absolutely brilliant where you play various instruments during the conga yeah so just a flute and yeah. it's just hilarious i was thinking is that actually the danish happy birthday song or is that just a song they made up oh, for no, the I, i've seen that in many a film, is it? Okay, many right, film. Right, right. um okay. so yeah it, although this seems to be a full-length version <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 
no, it's maximizing and, the moments at that point. Yeah, the, a lot of the comedy for the, of this film slipped by me the first time I saw it as well. This is like the, literally the second time I've seen this film. The, all the stuff with the Toastmaster. The Toastmaster is having the worst day imaginable. Yeah. And yeah, he still keeps on with his little German smile and keeps on trying to make the best of everything. It's so oh. much. Oh, uh, one criticism to make about this film. And I stand by this. I think it should be the father's 70th birthday. It's a very small detail. Interesting. It's a very small detail. Never thought of that, actually. The whole way through the movie, you're asking me to um, believe that Christian, Michael, and Helen are in their 20s. And I'm not buying that. No. Uh, It's a very small very good shout yeah very it's it's minuscule absolutely minuscule but if if you make it helga's um 70th birthday suddenly i'm down with someone suddenly everyone's about 33 i'm like yep cool right gotcha yep fine um but yeah uh all all these kids are too old having said that yeah they've all had very very bad lives they've they've really had bad lives two of them have been molested and one of them one of them has been forgotten about yeah yeah I don't know. We're not we're not making fun of that, obviously, but um, no, no, that's, no. Uh... They've, they've, had a hard, they've had a hard time, and they, they've. It's interesting how the the son who hasn't been molested has turned into such a douchebag, whereas the son who has has turned into this kind of quiet. But then, but then as you said, that flips, and it's like it's kind of. Uh, yes. So, uh, oh, shall, yeah. shall, we, shall we move on to the next dogma? Because uh, we're going to be on this all day. <laughs> oh, but I want to talk about class as well. No, yeah, let's move on. Dogma number two, the idiots. Now, Ben, the previous dogma was directed by one of the four original signatories who would later have moderate success and become a relatively famous name on a moderate scale. This Good dogma... Yeah, yeah, very moderate. I have to stress moderate. Uh, this dogma, however, is directed by one of the four original signatories who would later become an absolute revered or tear in the whole history of the medium. And it's because of films like this. There is nothing else out there like the idiots. Basically, it's about a group of people who all get together to discover their inner idiot. In other words, act disabled at the most inappropriate moments dealing with members of the public and their own family. And that isn't even that doesn't even come close to what the film's actually about. It's an extraordinary film. Like my original co-presenter years and years ago, Dr. Paul Dark, is an expert in the portrayal of disability in film. He adores the film and so do I. What a screenplay this is, Ben. Like mm-hmm. it seriously needs a special screening in cinemas when they re- you know, special cinemas in screen in cinemas as soon as possible. People need to watch it as soon as possible. This is a film born of over 20 years ago that fits in incredibly well with with now, with what's known as woke culture, which is comprised mm. of snowflakes. It's a look at, cl- you know, it's a look at class structure. It's a look at what society deems to be normal, what offends people. It's about social structure, the structure of a social unit, the construction of a family and a family unit. And, and, and massively, it's about class as well. It starts out being a fairly standard, you know, us versus them rebellious thing, you know, Extinction Rebellion, for example. But then mm. it, it then turns into a us and them, 
you know, it attacks the middle class, yet at the same time blames absolutely everybody who isn't middle class. And the film accepts that everybody is part of the same system and is therefore part of the same problem. You know, if you're interested in anything like this, you'll have a field day with this movie. This is probably the second or third time I've ever seen this movie since it came out in 1998, Ben. But I'm sure as as hell I'm not going to leave it as long until I see it again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rewatching this was really interesting because Festen, <clears throat> okay, the the first two Dogma films, Festen and the Idiots, are unfortunately probably the best of the the Dogma movies. Um, what rewatching Festen again, I'd forgotten so much of it. Whereas rewatching the Idiots, this was my second time that I've ever watched the film. Um, I remembered it terribly well, <laughs> which I think is interesting. <laughs> yeah, very very well. Um, and it's it's such a fascinating film to watch after Festen as well. So what do you get when you apply the dogma rules to cinema? You get this odd immediacy, which is missing from a lot of cinema. This It, it creates this kind of interest in right now, which doesn't happen in um, pretty much any other film. What The Idiot does, what ramps it up a, a notch, is the kind of the kind of the low technical qualities of the film might draw your attention to the fact that people are pretending to be someone they're not that they are acting let's say so what the idiots does is just runs into that eyes closed arms spread wide so now you are watching a film about people pretending to be something that they're not so that the whole idea of pretense in movie making is brought straight to the fore this is a film in which people are pretending to be something they're not, and you're watching them do that. And somehow, it's almost like a um, uh, like a found footage horror film. When you when you get found footage, it kind of removes one layer of the the falseness of the experience that you're watching a movie. It kind of bring makes it more immediate. And the idiots does that incredibly well. So even though you know these people are all actors, when as soon as they launch into a scene where they are what the film terms spazzing where they go to a public space, yes. they, they pretend to be something they're not. Um, you're filled with this kind of like enormous awkwardness about what you're watching. Um, it's It hurts to watch a lot of this film um, when you know they're just pretending, but that, that level of pretense is gone. All of a sudden, this is very immediate, very direct. It, it, it connects to you terribly strongly, I think. Um, and that that's just made even stronger by the fact that the film is is so not interested in being well made at all. So you see crew members running around. You do. You I see think, a boom. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I don't know if there are any other films. I mean, maybe. Um, oh God, what was that? That Belgian kind of found footage film about a serial killer, Man Bites Dog. Maybe that is the only other film I can think of where they they really lower the um, the the artifice to that level you you, you're fully aware that this is a movie all the way along um it's really really interesting very unpleasant there are no heroes um it it, which i think is a very 90s thing in the 90s there was a brief period where there there were no heroes everyone was fair game um all of this kind of ended with 9-11 and now now we do have heroes and we do have bad guys but things were very murky for a while there and you 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 felt like you couldn't put all of your eggs in one basket supporting any one particular group and that again that's what this film is doing um everyone is is broken and every everyone is shades of gray there are no heroes in this movie the people 
politics are just as kind of self-interested and broken as the people who they're they're pranking if you like and for me oh for me i've said this before but i feel this very strongly this is a film which is really really made by the ending um the final scene of this film makes you go back and reassess everything that you've seen i mean without spoilers perhaps but all along the way this is kind of fun and exciting and like socially awkward and weird but that final scene makes you reassess everything that went before and makes you go back the the only other film that i've seen that does this successfully is um brown bunny where that final scene makes you go back in your head and watch the entire film again and think reassess everything that you saw and what you thought was going on um it's in a way the opposite of nymphomaniac part two which is a film where the final scene really undercuts the seriousness of everything that went it's it's the opposite of nymphomaniac part two for me um a very very strong ending which was just as devastating as i remembered it being just just awful (laughs) there's been been a lot of films that have used ticking clock and silence as a thing to end a film with a lot of great moments this is up there for me as one of them yeah Uh, it it is just absolute perfection and as much as as you correctly surmise that the film has kind of been sloppy throughout Mm. oh it tightens itself up the ending yeah i mean talking about memory uh despite this being the probably the third time i've seen it ever uh i do also remember the ending very well so for me even still knowing what how it ends uh it, it, it's marvelous to see again because it does yeah. still pack that punch and it always will it and always will because you've been invested so much at that point and so. it's so underplayed compared to the other scenes that you've that you've seen the, the way she performs karen performs in the ending yeah is far far more subtle than anything that came before everything was very over the top and kind of like joyful and throwing it in the faces of middle class but her very very small action at the end of the film is nothing compared to what came before but because of the the context in which it's being delivered where you finally you finally understand who karen is and what she was doing in the beginning and her background it's absolutely devastating it yeah. really is. It's just, it's so difficult. Never, never before has a group of adults sat in a a, a beige living room felt quite so devastating. I mean, yeah, the weight of it all. I mean, the, the, I've mentioned the class stuff. Um, I was enjoying yeah. the film very, very much all the way up to a certain point. And then it elevated itself even higher for me. And that moment was, again, due to the class situation, when they start to profiteer from their situation. Yeah. Yeah. Now that it's not merely getting a free meal out of a restaurant or or whatever, or, or merely as you say, prancing about and having fun with it. Mm. When they actually start to make money off people, they then become part of the system that they are rebelling against. Yeah. Yeah. Now we see that so often nowadays with all these little groups, Hello Extinction Rebellion, ETC. <laughs> that is why this film transcends. It's why Festin transcends for different reasons. It's just, you know, for me. You've mentioned one of the other films this director has made. Uh, for me, if I'm, I would honestly put this in in this particular director's top five. I yeah. really, really oh, was. For sure. Uh, yeah. In terms of there are better looking films that he's done, there are maybe even better films that he has done. But for me, if if you assess this particular director's entire output. Uh, for me, this has to be in his top five. He has done nothing since this like this. He's done nothing before it like this. Um, it, it, this this really is just something 
absolutely extraordinary, really. And actually, if he hadn't made any other films after this, I'd have been relatively happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) And I would have lost out on a lot of good stuff. But, you know, this is just like, oh, my God, such a pleasure to kind of revisit this. Like doing we've done a lot of like revisiting, uh, revisiting directors. Now we are revisiting a whole movement. Um, Worry not, folks. There are some interesting stuff coming ahead. Please do not stop. You know, we promise you that. But um. Oh wow, you, you've, we've hit upon we've we you know we've really hit upon the masterpieces at a very yeah. early stage. Yeah. Uh, just just amazing. I think because the, these two films are using the modes of production that, that Dogma um, introduces to question how movies should be made. Yeah, and what you can do with them. Whereas a, a lot of the later Dogma films, as we will see, um, tend to just stick to a, a, a regular movie structure and a, a regular kind of arc. Um, but that's not what's going on in the first two at all, particularly not what's going on in Dogma 2. Th- this whole idea of making money from doing something that you enjoy and believe in um, links straight back into filmmaking. Um, and it, it's a very pertinent question. Are, are, are you doing something that you believe in or are you doing something in order to make money out of it? Because th- those are two different things. And some might say, well, you can do something you believe in and make money. That's no harm for sure. But then that undercuts um, the reason that you're doing it a little bit. Um, and, and the director in question has always struggled with that yeah. side of it, and it's always struggled with uh, the class issue of you know making films. Yeah. So uh, this despite... is his most class obsessed film, I think. Yes, no doubt. I mean, uh, I mean there's always been hints, and, and but he's actually spent a lot of time talking about religion yeah. uh, in, in in this director's particular movies, and uh, there's a lot of religious stuff, uh, which is absolutely you know why I'm a fan of the director. But uh, yeah, he he doesn't often link religion and class together together, uh, so he does kind of either have one or the other. Uh, this, as, as you say, this is very much a class thing, yeah. like yeah. explicitly so. So it's, yeah, it's shot in. Uh, this is not. This goes over my head because I'm not Danish, but it's <laughs> shot in a kind of um, a, a well-known Danish middle-class suburb. Yes. As well. yeah. so the the use of the location will mean something to Danes. Whereas, like anyone who's seen any of Lars von Trier's other films, will probably know that the location doesn't really matter often. Or, you know, he'll set a film in America, but it not actually shoot it in America. But here, the place where he's filming is very important to yeah. what's going on, which is. And, all, and it would also fit, of course, with the rules of dogma and the lack of money for it. So yeah. he probably he probably just drove down the road to this nearest middle class suburb and actually just did it, I guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the the technical technical qualities of the doctor film uh very clever how they filmed everything during the day uh so i wonder whether you know the director kind of watched dogma number one and thought i don't want to cheat in that way of having to put yeah. things over the curtains to make it dark we just shoot shoot everything in the day yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that... Actually, you, you don't need any night anyway of course it, it makes perfect sense for everything to be during the day uh i mean you, you mentioned the scene at the end to do with a family meeting mm. the, the awkwardness really 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 starts when one of the characters, and in fact, it's the demise of the group as a whole, isn't it? Yes. When one of the characters' fathers come down, yes. and oh my god, that cup of tea took forever to be drunk. Mm-hmm. It is the mm-hmm. slowest cup glass of tea, I should say, the slowest glass of tea in the history of the medium, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, actually. Oh my god, that went on, but in yeah. a good way, it went on and on yeah. and on, and that, and then of course, the group then demises further. One of them, and again. So in the sense that I was enjoying the film up to a certain point, then they start to profiteer from their from their uh, churlish, idiotic ways. Then one of them literally goes back to becoming a middle class lecturer. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, so that's a full circle just on the class issue for me. Like he starts, he goes to an extra theatre full of people and he starts talking about Matisse art or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is, oh my God, inject this in my veins, please. Like, yeah. just for me, there's nothing better than that for me. Yeah. That, that Just to see that arc come, you know, complete itself, magnificent. And moving on then to Dogma number three, uh, Bifune's last song. And uh, so far, Ben, we've had a director with a moderate amount of success, let's be fair. Then we moved on to a director with a more international reputation. And for this one, we kind of have a mixture of the two, really. And now playing to the rules of Dogma, again, we're not going to mention the director by name, which is really pointless for us, because you can just go and Google and find them. But uh, at least we're contributing our part on a Dogma special episode to Dogma. So... Uh, for this director we have who did Mufuni's last song is actually for, from, for all intents and purposes this film was a domestic hit and an international hit mm-hmm. uh, he did some other stuff before and after this that didn't quite reach the the kind of the heights of this um, and he kind of just like faded into obscurity like a lot of TV movies and, and stuff like that uh, until this director made the TV series Borgen which I reckon most of us have seen, uh, as well as it being transmitted all over the place. So a career defined by two things is uh, very, very interesting. Mm. From one of the four original signatories, in his contribution to Dogma, we follow a newly married man named Creston that has a few skeletons in his closet, to say the least. Uh, The biggest of all is that he grew up on a farm and has a retarded brother. His words, not mine. Uh, So he makes up excuses to his new wife, and goes back to Lurland, whereby he hires a housekeeper who also has skeletons in her closet uh, to help keep the house. And uh, he begins to basically fall in love with her. It, it is supposed to be, and it, I suppose when you kind of analyse the whole thing, it is actually a romantic comedy, or at least a romantic drama. Um, and for, But for me, Ben, it's just a very peculiar film all told, really. I mean, obviously, up to this point, it's the weakest Dogma film that we've seen. But that's because we've obviously seen two ones that transcend the, even the medium of film, never mind just their outstanding pieces of film. And there are further good ones to come. But, yeah, this the thing that stands out for me the most in, in Mifune's last song, it's the pacing issues, really. It feels like three hours, but you check the time and it's only about an hour and six minutes or something. Um, and that's actually quite unusual for Danish cinema, never mind dogma movies. The performances, however, are fine. Uh, I particularly like Eben Helia as the housekeeper. She's very attractive. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Good choice there, good choice. But all of them act well. There's some humour, which there needs to be, particularly with, with the retarded brother of Creston. But you're not laughing at him. You're just kind of laughing with him because yeah. his take on life is obviously very different, having a mental illness. But for me, there's just an overall lack of thrust, really, uh, considering that the film is essentially about not being able to escape from your past. And you've got an entire secret family and you've got a prostitute. And bear in mind that it's Danish and then it's dogma. When you watch it, I kind of wanted a bit more, something more than just being a ploddy experience, Ben, really. Yeah, <clears throat> you're not wrong at all. Um, yeah, for, for me, it wasn't the feeling long that was a problem. It was the kind of bittiness of it. Yeah. Um, nothing was really, oh, it is developed, but things will happen at, I don't know, it's, it's kind of just jagged and splintered and you'll get a, a funny scene slammed right next to a traumatic scene, which people might say, well, that's, that's how films work. They're, they're all different, different tonal moments all strung together. Somehow this is 
missing in between bits, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you'll just go from a, a very upsetting experience to a kind of very broad comedy moment. Um, and it's also, I, I, I feel terrible saying this, but so we've seen two dogmas so far. And although what both of those films did is put the actors at the center and make everything about the actors, performance first, um, they've also approached the project with the idea of cinema in the background as well. Absolutely. What you can do that's different. Um, this film is kind of, cinematically going through the motions it's yeah. just the coverage is how uh, a normal film would be covered yeah for the large part it's just that there are no lights <laughs> um and <laughs> well th- we say there's no diegetic mu- there's no non-diegetic music but there is this this film does a, a few breaks with the manifesto i don't know i don't know if that leapt out at you or not but we've got um non-diegetic music being used it, it just kind of feels like a regular film just done on dv instead of anything else um it, it was it's not boring at all I, no. I had a lot of fun with it i particularly had a lot of fun with the the group of working ladies who are um leavers friends who keep phoning in all the time they were they were just fantastic they reminded me of the the group of girls from inland empire they were just um yeah the real breath of fresh air there's also like because of the jaggedness of this there's a weird kind of tonal thing going on where all of a sudden people that we're supposed to like and they're supposed to be our our heroes are doing things which are really unpleasant and i don't know it's got a kind of it hasn't got the kind of okay so the first dogma one and dogma two they they're unpleasant because they're challenging you um to about family about social conventions about all these kind of things but this film isn't doing that this film um, what was that we watched a film recently where there's a there's a cock shot in it and it just feels like a kind of daily mail cock shot like ooh, look at this um there's elements of that to mifune for me there's there's elements of i don't know just kind of a very cheap uh upsetting middle class behavior going on um it, but like i say it was entertaining i had fun all the way through it the performances are, for the large part, quite good. Um, it's just a bit staid and uh, middle of the road for a dogma, yep. which is unfortunate. It is, uh, but unfortunately 100% correct. But as you say, not without merit. And for me, the biggest scenes that stand out in terms of that are right at the beginning, actually, when when he cu- when uh, Creston, who has just got married, comes out the church and he starts looking around anxiously. Yeah. Like... From that moment, you just know that A, the marriage ain't going to last, and B, what's he hiding? Yeah. Uh, and, and and then there's more afterwards where, again, he's looking. I mean, it's very, very, very deliberate, not subtle, about as subtle as a brick. However, it sets the tone. Right, here's yeah. a guy we can't trust. What are you hiding? And that's what the, fil- the entire film's about from beginning to end. So that's great. Next, you also mentioned uh, the women. Yeah. Spot on. And we are introduced to those via a fantastic mirror reflecting scene where they are all kind of applying mirrors uh, because they're all prostitutes, basically, or or working ladies, if you prefer. And uh, yes, our heroine, uh, Livel is is her name again, sorry. Yeah, Lever, sorry. Um, Yeah, played by Ibn Kelly again. Uh, Yes, she's one of those. And they're, they're talking about, I think they're talking about actors they they 
or, or film characters they love or something. I think I think Jean Claude Van Damme gets mentioned and some other ones, and and then and they're doing it whilst applying all applying their makeup together, in a again in a mirror reflection scene that's kind of like in and out of focus occasionally and zooming in and out. Uh, like, it's a you know. mirror as well, distorting and. Yes, absolutely. So again, you know that these women shady characters from this and you know that they're not to be trusted necessarily and again that comes back quite nicely at the end with their actions so great stuff and what i like about that scene as well if you've been watching danish cinema for as long as we two have then uh you know these you know these actresses you know them yeah. like, uh, but it's not it's nice seeing them young you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we've all we've seen them all many times we know them and uh yeah it's just nice to see them all it's like a greatest hits of danish actressing it is yeah. like- <laughs> Old uh, now that's what I call music, Volume Four. You know. <laughs> oh, God, look at them, look at them, so young. Now that's what I call Sidse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think one of my big problems with this film is that we've gone from in the in Dogma One and Two, the stakes are really high. Yeah, kind of like personal and societal stakes going on here, and in Mifune you've got a, a bunch of strangers thrown together, and then instantly the stakes are. are far far lower because they don't really know each other and they're not really interlinked properly yeah uh, so nothing really ha- carries as much weight as it did in dogma one and two so you get the high levels of drama and screaming and upsetting behavior and stuff but because these people are all just just meeting each other for the first time doesn't really pack the punch that one and two did and that combined with the kind of stayed by the numbers way of covering scenes as well it all just kind of like starts to mean less and less as the film goes on i mean as as we've already said many times there are the 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 very very genre changing uh movie bending kind of ones have happened already but there are as i say very interesting ones to come be of no doubt about that this but what we will also have obviously are dogma by numbers and this is one because yeah you mentioned rule breaks but actually they're 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 not as oh my god they've broken the rules as some of the other ones are like for example in in dogma one where he he, he creates artificial darkness by putting curtains over a, a black drape over a over a scene for example um, that's very much against the rules because you you could have just waited till the night but yeah. no they, they, were, they just couldn't afford to so they just had to get on with it so there goes the drape over the windows to make it night again uh, and when you see it it is kind of obvious but it's uh, that's the thing whereas here this is a very middle of the road as i say dogma by numbers and it yes the diegetic non-diegetic non-diegetic music and stuff but uh that's one of the lesser kind of things isn't it like everything else is just kind of yeah it's just pl- as i say plodding along and just kind of ticking all the boxes where it can and stuff and it's there's no passion it feels to me there's no passion there's no heart uh, and when you then see what the director did before and after it's just he he never quite made the heights that uh, his contemporaries did, uh, his fellow signatories did, other than a quite fantastic TV series about Danish politics that we've all seen, I would think, or most of us have. So, um, yeah, it kind of fits in with him as a director, really, which seems a bit harsh, but it's probably true. But uh, that is dog, dog number is dog number three director. Indeed, but uh, he's done his bit. Dogma number four: The King is Alive. Yeah, dog, Dogma four: The King is Alive is our, our first dogma to be shot outside of Denmark. This is yes. ter- terribly <laughs> exciting. Uh, 
I'm going to go on record saying I'm not 100% sure where it's shot, but it is outside of Denmark. Um, somewhere in Africa, I think. It's, I think it's Namibia. Okay. I oh, yeah. think so. But but who's to, who's to say? This village could be anywhere in the desert in Africa. And there are quite a few villages and quite a few deserts in the Kingdom of Africa. Yeah, if they were to have shot it in Mauritania, I, I wouldn't, I would not know. If it was easier to get to than Namibia, fine. I'm not going to judge them. So let's just assume it is actually Namibia for the sake of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we feature, we uh, follow a group of uh, tourists on a bus who are making their way to to the airport or from the airport, um, and they're driving along through the night when they discover that the the compass is broken on the bus and they've been driving the wrong direction all night long. They're in the middle of nowhere, and that's when the bus breaks down. Um, at this completely unpopulated village in the middle of the desert. Uh, the bus breaks down. One of our characters, who you, you, you would think is going to be a hero, called Jack, from the way he behaves, kind of organises everyone together into a group. Uh, he goes off to get some more petrol, tells them to hold tight, and they all sit there waiting for Jack to come back and decide to put on a Amdram version of King Lear. Have <laughs> a few drinks, hang out do some singing and dancing and that is basically our film it's, <laughs> it's a group of stories sitting and waiting for jack uh, for some reason they've ended up calling this the king is alive fantastic yeah and this is our first kind of uh, outside of danish cinema this is our first dogma to feature i don't know superstars of the acting world absolutely yeah sure no doubt i was absolutely blown away by the cast of this film i did not know that these people were in this film if you'd have so, had a shot every time, every time you said, "What's he doing here? Yeah, What's she what? doing here?" You'd actually have been you. You've actually been comatose after about five minutes and not seeing the film, which would have been a shame. How has he got How has he got all these people together? <laughs> four minutes into the film, when I noticed Brian James, and I was like, <laughs> "Hell is Brian James doing in this? What's he doing uh, in a dogma film?" <laughs> then, then when I noticed Jennifer Jason Lee was in the film, oh I, my god, I exploded. That was that was too much for me. <laughs> uh, it is after dogmas one two and three dogma four comes in and it's it's introducing something which um seems to be a kind of unwritten motif of dogma films now which is that the films are going to largely take place in one location and what is that location how interesting is it and what's going to happen there so in dogma one you've got this big house in the middle of the countryside where the family get together in dogma two although it does play around lots of different locations you do have principally this house in the suburbs where everyone stays in dogma three you've got this ramshackle old house in lurland where everyone lives and in dogma four you've got this unpopulated kind of village it's kind of it's placeless faceless it could be anywhere it's barren and then it's just filled up with the characters themselves um the king is alive is for me it's it's slightly more interesting than dogma three not as interesting as dogmas one and two yep um uh it's a little bit theatrical yeah but then because we're doing king lear i guess that's okay um and then also a lot of these these tourists that we're following have theater backgrounds which kind of dictates how they behave but it it, it does have a little bit of um that kind of classic idea for making a horror film where you you get 10 strangers to put them in a house in the middle of the nowhere and then chop them all up. That is, this is the kind of dialogue-driven version of that, if you like, where these people are just backstabbing and fighting amongst themselves as they start to 
get more and more tired and ill and hungry and thirsty, all waiting for Jack to turn up. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not something that I would recommend to people hands down. I would get Festin and the idiots. I, I would a hundred percent recommend them to people. This is um, a trickier watch. I think um, it's got a, a much better sense of aesthetics than dogma three. Yeah. It's got a real good look to it. Um, the performances are, are for the large part fantastic. Um, everything is just kind of tilted slightly towards the destructive and depressing side of things, <clears throat> um, which is a shame. Um, but there you go. I don't know. How, how did you find it? Well, I mean, I'll just sort of bring up uh, the, the the location thing, which you've mentioned throughout that. And uh, obviously, it's one of the rules of dogma that uh, if the location doesn't have the prop that you need, you have to move to that location and film your film. Hence why uh, you st- you, it is far easier to make a dogma film by sticking to one location, one central core thing, whether, and it has to be big. So, yes, a house, fine. Obviously, if you're going to do this, you're going to be abandoned in a desert. Uh, and you want to kind of show a little bit of Bear Grylls, but thankfully not too much in this movie, then you've got to show some broken roofs yeah. and some sticks that you can make for fire and some tin food. You've got to show all that on location. You have to, if, you, if you're determined to stick to the rules. And uh, the director here stuck to those rules very well. And on the director, at the time of recording, five films in 34 years, Ben. Yeah, yeah, um, I mean, and the mo- the most recent one at time of recording was the Salvation. Did you see that? I didn't. No, I've not seen any of this this unnamed director's other movies. Problematic, shall we say? Okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, the Salvation is a bizarre western that not even Mads Mikkelsen can save, uh, yeah. and it, and it's got a strange and pointless cameo from Eric Cantona. Uh, and and the, one or two, one or two of his others are fine, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd put this one in there. But you know, as I say, five films in thirty four years again. Is his heart really in it, really? Uh, but this is the third best contribution out of the four original dogma movement signatories for me. So we're in agreement about that. In its favour, without a doubt, are, and I've, I've alluded to a few things really when I posed the question at the beginning. When will the dogma manifesto rules enhance the viewing experience, enhance yeah. the drama and improve the overall enjoyment of the film at least? Or, of course, that can all, all be down to opinion. But for me, you're looking at kind of when does the unlimited budget and the unlimited freedom of technology and stuff, when does that get in the way of a film? And when does the dogma thing kind of enhance the film? Mm-hmm. And for me, this film would have been worse in modern day. I have absolutely zero doubt about that because everything is shot on location in the desert. There is zero comping. There Uh is no green screen. It's as you said, it's stripped bare. This is a laid bare location and a laid bare film for everybody to see. And it works well here in most cases for me. It really does work exceptionally well in some other cases, which I'll come on to in a bit. The cast, however, is a problem for me. Mm. It's just a little bit off. Like, um, I mean, as much as Dogma 3 had good characters and zero technical qualities, basically, for a dogma, this is the opposite. I did not like any of the characters, but I adored the technical qualities of the film. Could I have done without the British voices and the English language in this film? 100% yes. Yes, yes, yes. All day long, yes. Uh, I mean, put me in this group of people, Ben, I'd have to top myself first. Like, you know, the theatre actor character, the thespian, you know, the gobby Brit, the slimy old Brit. Like, shoot them, then shoot me, 
basically. Yeah, the slimy old Brit was particularly upsetting. Slimy old Brit was horrendous. I mean, I, I'd, I'd have just hung out with a French chick until, until she died. I would have been yeah. fine with that. And then I just, I'd have topped myself. Anyway, equally, did I become enthralled by the King Lear stuff, even as their reality starts to become just like King Lear? Not really. Wasn't a big fan of that stuff either. But as I alluded to just seconds ago, the dogma unique shots here and there are just wow. Like mm. there are some that are just absolutely mesmerizing. I'm not going to spoil them exactly because I want you to I want you all to see them. And for me, for that reason, I am recommending this film. Uh, but as things start to disintegrate badly, and it sort of takes a reasonably long time for it to really start, you know, the shit to yeah. really start hitting the pan. You even look at the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie for things to really complete collapse. It's it's quite slow until then. Mm. Um but, you know, when people begin to expire, basically, uh, things, you know, the camera work and the sound designs are just fantastic. The slimy Brit's death is the one. Uh, it's just a breathtaking shot, uh, which, again, I'm not going to say anything more. You'll know who the slimy Brit is and you will know when he dies. The still shot of the fire and another character and the slimy Brit, who is uh, motionless, is just one of the best shots I've seen in the entire looking at dogma so far. It's just amazing. Uh, and also, Ben, kind of the, the screams and the maniacal whirling of the camera when Jack's body is found in the sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was transy. Uh, but, but, and there are quite a few transy moments, uh, like how the film captures the passing of time. Again, passing of time has to be done naturally. It's a rule that you cannot superficially kind of go through different time zones. The thing has to be... Do it now. You've got to, yeah, that has to be filmed right there now. But in, but what um, the director here does very cleverly is film some scenery of now and then just speeds the footage up, which means that they are going forward quickly in time. So it's well within the rules, very, very clever. And it's stuff like that that I want to see. And we have seen in some, and I want to see a lot more of that kind of ingenuity going forward. Think about it. We've actually seen that in modern cinema as well, but obviously in a lot more in a lot less obvious way. So uh, it's a flash forward, not a flash back, basically. And it's literally a flash because it's fast forwarding the footage. So very, very nicely done stuff there. Nice time manipulation. Nice use of dogma rules. Nice kind of shots, as I said already. Uh, so I, I can only really say, repeat really, is that Dogma 3 had the characters, but Dogma 4 had the technical qualities, Ben? Yeah, it, it did. It's, it's also something that was kind of missing for me <clears throat> a little bit was... Um, if we're going to stay in one location, we're going to explore it to the fullest. Maybe we should, maybe we should feature less of the actors and more of sure. the kind of location a little bit. Because um, you got this, you know, you're you're filming in Namibia in the middle of nowhere, and yet you're filling the screen with um, slimy British guy for a lot of the time. Um, it, it would be nice to watch a dogma film get a little bit looser and start to explore the place where it's filmed rather than the people who are in that place a bit. If, if if that's not too abstract, I would I would like to see that. Yeah, but then it's kind of like, well, it, it seems to me that Dogma is essentially making every film about its characters. That's just a natural yeah. thing to do when you're that intimately with them, with yeah. them with the limited millimeter camera that you're using. It's right. it seems that yeah, that's how it seems to be. Going back to Dogma three, like in Dogma one and two, these these groups of people were very interconnected. In Dogma three, they were kind of strangers and dogma four you've got this again you've got a, a bunch of strangers thrown together so yeah it's difficult to have as much strength uh, on the the kind of the the test of their relationship as it is in dogma one and two because these people don't know each other so they all they do is they're 
we all we've got is kind of like introducing yourself to people and then screaming at people. Um, those are the the two things that we've got going on here. Um, which you know, it would be nice to see a go back to those kind of dogma one and two things. People who are strongly linked together to each other, testing those kind of boundaries or testing the the ties that connect them, in using the dogma rules to kind of cover everything. Um, that would be that would be nice to see in the future. And we will do, so I'm sure, at some point. But uh, as for as for this directors of the films, probably fear me not is is the best one that he's done really. Um, this would probably, yeah, I would, I would say this is almost certainly his, his second best ever film. So people may take that out of the five, may take that how they like, really. <laughs> again, moderate success is an understatement. Although, again, for some bizarre reason, The Salvation made it to Cannes. Mm. I've never even heard of this film. I'm going to go it's, look uh, it. It, it is crazy. I mean, obviously, when I, when I was first ever introduced to dogma films, dogma directors, people associated with it obviously the first thing was check out the, the original four signatories movies yeah and uh obviously this particular director has only done five so they were quite easy to get hold of and watch and uh i thought right yeah that makes again just like with dogma three it kind of made sense when that he kind of plateaued his own peak really in fact he never even really had a peak so uh, that again can say a lot but king is alive if you if you're a Shakespeare fan, you pop up, you will get a little bit more out of it because it is very very King Leary. There is no doubt about that. It's quite apparent that it's about that, um, and it's that it's that Danish thing of the theatrical element that that um, one of the other original uh, four signatories for for Dogma did in uh, in Dogville and Mandalay. Uh, so so again, it's a, it's a thing that obviously holds holds it holds a very, very kind of powerful force in, in directors' minds in Denmark, that theatre is a thing, you know. And maybe that's why they need the Brits to go with it as well, because, sure. because theatre is right up front. Absolutely. But uh, King of Life, certainly better than Dogma 3. We'll be back in a few weeks to do it all over again with some more. So uh, until then... Mm-hmm.